was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am honored to be joined by our guest, writer-director Barry Kleinbort. Today, we focus on the many musicals he has penned, including 13 Things About Ed Carpilotti, Was, Angelina, Metropolitan, Second Avenue Rag, The Rat Race, and more. You can also hear interspersed throughout the episode never-before-released songs from some of these shows done by stellar singers such as Howard McGillan, Roger Bart, Danny Burstein, Rita Gardner, and more. So, without further ado, Barry Kleinbort. How did you first get interested in theater and music? Oh, gosh. Um... I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm curious, you know, I, all, all we know is we have some sort of a calling. We're very young and we decide we want to do something. And uh, um, interestingly enough, um, music was not my first direction. Uh, I thought I would be an actor. And then uh, when I moved to New York, because I was originally from Chicago, when I moved to New York, I thought I would be a director. And uh, and so that was what I pursued was directing. And then, uh, but I always had an interest in music and I'd always loved musical theater and I'd always, um, you know, um, listened to all of the, the great songwriters and their show albums and, and you know, a, a, a funny, uh, well, you'll find it funny, I hope. Anyhow, uh, uh, I remember when I was a kid that uh, one of the new Beatles albums had come out, and I think it was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Go Bad. And a friend of mine came over and uh, he said, I just bought the album and he wanted to show me the cover. And he stood in my living room and he said, what are you listening to? And I said, oh, I said, it's this show called Anyone Could Whistle. And I was trying to explain to him that the, the, uh, the interrogation was on Simple the song Simple. And I was trying to explain that they're trying to separate the crazy people from the same people. I'm trying to tell, explain this plot to him. And he's nodding his head, but I knew he didn't have any idea what I was talking about. I, I would say at that point, I didn't have any idea what I was talking about, but, but um, anyhow, we were living in different worlds. Um, when I went away to college, I decided that I really wanted to write music. And um, so, uh, but to take music courses at my university, you had to either declare a major or a minor in music. And, um, uh, and I hadn't done either. Uh, so I said, well, the hell with them. And I got some books and I, I would sneak into the music department and I would use a piano there and I would try to figure out some of it by myself. When, uh, when I moved to New York, uh, the music thing started to take hold. And uh, I was uh, introduced to a man by the name of 
Dan Wirtz. And Dan was an orchestrator and he worked for a guy named Kirk Nurok. And you may not know that name, but Kirk Nurok was an orchestrator who, um, orchestrators used to farm orchestrations when they were doing the show because orchestrations had to happen so quickly when they were out of town. And Kirk Nurok was one of their go-to guys. So even though it may have said Ralph Burns did the orchestrations, Kirk Nurok may have done some of those orchestrations. Anyhow, he uh, taught Dan and Dan said, I'm going to teach you. And uh, I didn't understand anything that I was doing. So, uh, uh, but I would go to him every week and he would give me an assignment. And at the end of our lesson, I would play my assignment. And he, say, he said, I always look forward to this because you always fulfill the assignment in the weirdest way. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, it's because I didn't know what I was doing. So then I had a job. I was working at a theater in Akron, Ohio. Is this the answer to your question? I had a, a job at Akron, Ohio, and I'm walking down the street of Akron, Ohio, a, a street in Akron, Ohio, and uh, the light bulb went on. And I suddenly understood everything that Dan Wirtz was trying to teach me. So I called him long distance and I said, what do I do? And he said, keep going. You're way ahead of the game. So uh, he said, you have an instinct and you've got to follow the instinct. So um, when I got back to New York, I really put my music cap on. So this is the perverse nature of show business is that if you want to do something, pick something else, and then you'll get to do what you want to do. Because it, it, it never is, if you want something, you won't get it. But if you want something else, then you'll get what you originally wanted. So suddenly I had all these directing jobs, uh, but I still wanted to do the music thing. Um, and there was a play by uh, Frank D. Gilroy. And Frank D. Gilroy had written uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning play called The Subject Was Roses. And it really put him on the map. And then he, he followed it up with a second play that was called That Summer, That Fall. And I read it when I was in high school. And I said, one day I'm going to make a musical of this play. Don't ask me why. I just said, I'm going to do this. So uh, I finally reached a point in my life when I thought, I am now able to do the job. I think I can actually do the job. So uh, uh, I called up Frank D. Gilroy and uh, he said to me, he says, I said, is this Frank Gilroy? And he said, yes. And he said, uh, what do you want? And I said, well, I'd like to make a musical of your play that summer, that fall. And there was a long pause. And then he said, well, that's the first one of those I've gotten. <laughs> so uh, he said, okay. He said, I don't, he didn't live in New York. He said, I come into the city every so often. And he said, um, I'll let you know when I'm coming to town and we'll meet and we'll discuss. And about a month later, my phone rang and it was Frank Gilroy. And he said, I'm coming to New York. I'll meet you at the Oak Bar in the Plaza Hotel, which was a very, I'm, you know, I'm sorry it's gone. If, Charles, there are pieces of New York that I wish you could see because the Oak Bar was definitely one of them. It was just one of the most beautiful places in New York City. And he said, I'll meet you there and we'll talk. So, uh, so a friend of mine says, whatever you do, don't order anything stupid, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, like a, 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 a Brandy Alexander or something like that. He said, order dry sack with a lemon twist, which is a sherry. He said, so dry sack with a lemon twist. So I show up at the plaza and there's Frank Gilroy. 
and we sit down and he says, would you like something to drink? And I said, I'll have a vodka and tonic. And Frank Dora said, I'll have some dry sack with a lemon twist. I swear to you. <laughs> so uh, we discussed the play and he said, don't you think because of the serious nature of the play that it should be an opera? And I said, well, it could be an opera, but I said, I think I'd like to use the, mu the language of the musical theater to make it into a musical. And he said, okay, then here's my deal. I'll give you permission to work on it for six months for no money. At the end of the six months, you will play me some of the numbers. And if I don't like it, I have the power to abort the project right then and there. Uh, otherwise, if I do like it, then we'll sit down and we'll draw up a contract, which was extremely fair of him. And, and he said, I own all the rights to the place, so you only have to deal with me, I, I'm it. So six months went by, I invited him. There was a Richard Rogers piano was in an office in, a, in the uh, building next to Sardi's. And it was where the Dramatist Guild was. They had an office upstairs. And it used to be Lee Schubert's office. And I love talking to you, Charles, because you know everything I'm talking about. So Lee Schubert had this office upstairs in, in the Sardi's building. And Richard Rogers donated his Bosendorfer piano to the room. And it was the piano that we did the audition on for Frank Gilroy. And Frank came with his wife and there were just a handful of people and I got some singers together and we did five songs from the score. Uh, and he said afterwards, he said, I had no idea what you were going to do. I love it. I give you my permission, go for it. And, uh, uh, and that was the beginning of me writing musicals, really. <laughs> yeah. So, so now uh, let's take this opportunity to hear two selections from the musical Angelina. The first is Vidi na Croce, performed by Rita Gardner. And the second is The Beach Scene, performed by Sal Viviano and Janet Metz. <laughs> Grazie a Dio, oh, 
but anyway, grazie Dio. Last week I prayed for rain, Signore mio. No rain and still the pain, grazie Dio. I want to go back a little bit to sort of fill in some of your steps. So when did you decide to move to New York? Was it because you knew that there would be more theater there? Yes. Um, When I moved to New York, there were really only two places to go. Um, If you wanted theater, you came to New York. If you wanted movies, you went to California. Those were the coasts, and that was the difference between the two coasts. And I wanted the live experience. I had been in plays in high school. Uh, I had written some songs in high school for shows, and we, you know, we would do uh, pro- uh, you know projects that uh, just to just to just to do things, you know, keep busy. And um, also at college, I was in the theater department, and uh, I knew I wanted to be in New York. And uh, and moving to New York was not a big deal for me because. I grew up in Chicago, so I was moving from one city to another city. For some people who never lived in a city, New York could have been challenging, but it, it wasn't for me. And um, I, 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 the first show I saw when I came to New York when I was uh, when I was in high school, I, I, and that was what determined that I was going to move here. But I, I, I was 16 years old, I think, and I, the first musical I saw was The Apple Tree uh-huh. uh, with uh, Barbara Harris. And she and you know Barbara Harris was famous for missing performances, so I showed up at the Schubert Theater that night. It's my first Broadway show, and I'm going to pick up my ticket. And I hear everyone around me going, "She's here! She's here! She's here!" So <laughs> I go, "Barbara Harris is going to be there tonight," <laughs> and uh, and indeed she was. And it's still one of the it's in the top ten performances I've ever seen in my life, still to this day. She was um, irreproachable in terms of her talent. I mean, she was just, um, she, you know, you know the musical, three one acts, mm-hmm. and, and they, the actors play in all three, one, three acts. Um, you swore two intermissions. She would do a makeup change when, the, when she came on in the second act and then in the third act. You swore that it was another actress and not Barbara Harris because she was so transformed by what she did. So, so anyhow, the point is, even though I didn't know what I thought of New York, I knew what I thought of the theater. Yeah. And, uh, and I knew I had to be a part of it in some way. I knew I had to come here and I had to be a part of it. And so I didn't have any misgivings about that. And, and at that time, Chicago, there, were, there was some pr- professional theater in Chicago, but, um, but there wasn't a lot of paid theater. So, so in other words, every church had a had a playhouse in its basement, and somebody was putting on a production of, uh, you know, of, uh, of, uh, of what would they've been doing, Gypsy or you know something like that. But, but as far as perf- uh, paid work, not much. It's it's a very different game now. Uh, so that's why I see you were already here. See, you you you, you didn't have to move here, Charles. <laughs> you're you're here. <laughs> What was the so you were mentioning, I know, Sondheim and Anyone Can Whistle. 
who were some of the other composers that you sort of looked up to as composers? Uh, okay, uh, I, I, I gravitated to different uh, composers for different things. Uh, Bernstein certainly was a, a huge influence. Uh, Sondheim, interestingly enough, when I was in college, you're, you're gonna love this. I went through a, a, an old notebook when I was in college, a uh, freshman in college, and I said, I think we should do, I, I, I had gotten involved with an off-campus group, and I said, we should do a review. And I said, we should do a review of Stephen Sondheim's songs and, and call, call it Lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. Now, I want you to know at this point, he hadn't written Company, Follies, and everything after it. So I wanted to do this review. I mean, it, it, it was a prescient moment. Uh, you know, and I called it lyrics because at that point he only had more lyric, he had more lyrics than scores. Uh, he, he only had uh, really two scores, Forum and, and um, oh no, uh, yeah, Forum and uh, Anyone Can Whistle and, uh, and then lyrics to a lot of things and a couple of isolated songs that he didn't use the lyrics for. Um, he, he, would have, he was, Evening Primrose had already happened, some of these things. Uh, I couldn't introduce, I couldn't uh, uh, convince any do this show so uh, I, I just think it's it's ironic you know what can I say um, uh, but other composers who uh, I I think it's interesting I'm at a point in my life where I'm trying to figure out who influenced whom and uh, and if you read all these books which I'm sure you devour but you read all these books about if so Richard Rogers and George Gershwin and Cole Porter and uh, they all worshiped at the feet of Jerome Kern. Jerome Kern was the great uh, influencer of all of them. They all looked up to him. Uh, and, but then I thought, well, somebody influenced Kern. And so of course he was influenced by a previous, uh, but it was not an American. He was in, in, influenced by the European tradition because Kern started out writing additional songs for European operettas when they came over to America and they wanted to put in some Americanized songs. And he, he did several operettas. Uh, the composer's name was Leo Fall. And there's no doubt about it, Kern thought Fall was a really good composer and he tried to emulate what he did. And that became Kern's style. So there really is this pecking order and then, of course, the next generation all was in, in, trying to imitate Gershwin and Porter and Rogers, you know, and, uh, uh, and so I find that my influences were that next generation. So it's, it's Bach and Harnick, and it's Kander and Ebb, and it's Sondheim, and it's Charles Strauss and Lee Adams, and it's Cy Coleman and Carolyn Lee. And, uh, and also Mark Blitzstein. Mark Blitzstein was a, a, a tremendous uh, influence on my writing. Um, uh, I thought he was, uh, uh, he was truly a great theater man and understood things that nobody else understood uh, about, about the musical theater. And I, I, he influenced Bernstein, Bernstein and Frank Lesser and so many people were influenced by Blitzstein. So, um, I don't think he gets enough credit for what he did, uh, but that's just that's 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 my feeling. 
so, uh, and when Julie Stein, how could I leave out Julie Stein? Julie Stein, one of the, one of the greatest. Um, and, uh, but it all goes in the computer, your, the personal computer. <laughs> and um, I always said that about Bernstein too. I always said the difference between Bernstein and Andrew Lloyd Webber is that Bernstein, you could hear all the influences. And I'm talking about classical composers too, everything going into the Bernstein machine. But Bernstein had a definite imprint and he knew how to stamp it so it sounded like him. He had a definite sound. And Lloyd Webber does the same thing. All the influences go into the machine, but he doesn't have that signature. He, you, you can't get away from the influences because his own imprint isn't strong enough to mask the influences. And that's my theory, do, do with it what you will. <laughs> Question. So I want to ask you a little bit about while you were directing in New York at first, did right. you think that composing was on the side or do you think you were doing directing sort of on the side? Or what was your intention? That's a very good question. Um, I think I, I, once I started directing, uh, I, and, and I enjoyed it, but I thought I missed the composing. So therefore the composing became a stronger uh, draw. But the thing about composing is that you're not being paid for composing. So, so the, this is where the financial, uh, uh, you know, balance comes in. Uh, composing was something I was doing for myself. Nobody asked me to write a musical version of that summer, that fall. You know, uh, when when musicals were created in the '30s and the '40s and even in the '20s, teams were put together to create shows. They may have been working on things, but mostly they were already in. You know, they were hired and to write the show. Um, you know, I was doing this for, for myself and hoping that a production was going to get on, um, which is not the best way to write shows. Um, uh, but it was, so then for financial reasons, then the directing was uh, a major part because that was, that was bringing money and the composing wasn't bringing money. For those, going back to your Angelina, the musical, right. for those who don't know what the Frank Gilroy play is about, do you want to say a little bit about what? Yeah, sure. Uh, um, I, I showed the play itself. The play is, um, uh, it is a modern retelling of the legend, Greek legend of Phaedra and Hippolytus. And Phaedra and Hippolytus, uh, Phaedra was the, the queen who falls in love with the stepson of her husband, hopelessly in love with the stepson of her husband. And it, it, it doesn't end happily. And Frank Gilroy uh, relocated it to Little Italy in New York, uh, an Italian family. And um, uh, I gave the play to a friend of mine who I trusted uh, a lot. And I said, read this and, and said, understand I wanna make this a musical, but read this and tell me what you think. So he calls me up and he says, you're crazy. <laughs> he said, why do you want to make this a musical? He said, it's, it's, um, he said, there, uh, he said, what do the songs do? And I said, this is a play about what isn't said. And I said, the songs can tell us what isn't already said. 
And I said, that's where the songs are. And he said, I get it, you should write it. And uh, he was the one who was instrumental in getting me Frank Gilroy's phone number and called me up and said, go for it. So uh, the Gilroy play, uh, which was not a success, but I should mention it was the play that introduced Tyne Daly to a Broadway audience as, as a young girl. It was her first Broadway play. Um, and John Voigt was also one of the stars of the play and had not had a, a major role on Broadway before this. Um, and uh, I, uh, I, I worked on, uh, I called the play Angelina, which was the, the heroine's name, the Phaedra character. And, um, uh, and I thought um, the play is all about ritual and it's all about, which, which is to go to the Greek underpinnings. It's all about the ritual and, and the drama and the tragedy. And so I incorporated the neighborhood into my work uh, so that the neighborhood ladies became like a Greek chorus. Um, uh, the, play with, uh, the play was very small, only five characters, but I started building it out to, to be about the environment and, uh, and, and showing scenes that they only talked about. And um, Frank Kilroy came to see the play, the musical. I finally got it on uh, at a theater in, uh, uh, right outside of Albany, did a production, and Frank drove up to see it. And uh, he called me up after seeing it. And he said, I don't know how you saw what you saw in what I wrote, but if I could go back and do it again, I would steal all of your ideas. Because he said, what you did was, he said, the, the production, the Broadway production was missing the sense of ritual. People took it as a very realistic play. He said, and I never meant it as a realistic play. And he said, um, he said, we had this great set in the original production by Joe Melziner. It was said it was just beautiful. And he said it was for the wrong show. He said, as soon as the curtain went up, people thought I was writing The Subject Was Roses, another kitchen sink drama. And he said, I meant this play to be spare and um, odd. And, um, and he said, and not realistic. And, he, and I said, well, as soon as you have people on a stage singing, you're no longer in realism. You're, you're, in, you're in this new world. And the, the singing actually worked better for telling the story than just telling the story without it. But he loved the whole sense of the neighborhood. He said that was a, a big part of what, what uh, that story was about. And so uh, he, was a, he was a great supporter uh, of my work. Uh, I, I've been very blessed by some of the people I've, I've met over the years, Charles, uh, who um, who support supported my ideas, and Frank was definitely one of them. Uh, did I explain enough about the story? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, when you were writing the book to this show, did you take right. directly from the play, or did you sort of rewrite it a little bit yourself? Yes, um, I because the play was so spare, uh, and I knew that the songs were going to do most most of the lifting. Uh, I I I used a lot of the play, but then I when I had scenes that were outside of the realm of what the play was, I created all the dialogue myself, and um, uh, and I I'm faithful to a lot of what Frank wrote, but it but again, as soon as you put in songs. You're, you're in a different world. And so uh, um, I, 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 
I added several scenes. I, you know, it, it's kind of like um, you look at any adaptation. You look at, you know, Alan J. Lerner with Pygmalion and you look how he, he you know, the scenes that where he, he went outside of uh, Henry Higgins' uh, study, you know, he created a lot, but he had to match the tone of what Shaw had written. And more importantly, he had to match it because Rex Harrison wouldn't learn it unless it sounded like it was Shaw. <laughs> um, but uh, that was a challenge too, in terms of tone, to make sure that people weren't sure which line I wrote and which line was Frank Gilroy's. And even Frank said to me, I don't know what's mine. <laughs> And, 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 and I love that. At intermission, he said to me, how does it come out? And I said, what do you mean, how does it come out? You wrote the play, how does it come out? He says, oh, I know that. He says, but I don't know how we get there. And I said, that's great. So, uh, so that's the trick is to try to make it all sound of a piece, yeah. Yeah. So how did you sort of manage to make this subject for a play palatable to an audience? Wow. That's a really good question. Um, I felt that I was writing in a time that audiences were more acceptable to dark endings. Uh, I probably am wrong, but, uh, but it was uh, uh, one of the things that Frank Gilroy said to me is he said, your ending is dark. He said, but he said, I'd go even darker. <laughs> and and uh, I did do a rewrite of, a, of it that I've never seen on stage, but I did do a, a rewrite of the ending that it, that takes it in a slightly different direction. But, um, but, but I think that the point about Greek tragedy is that you know what the ending is gonna be. It's about how you get there. And, um, and I thought that um, I don't know. It's, it's a good question. I, I think now, even now, we're more used to uh, serious endings in musicals, more downbeat endings in musicals than we were even when I wrote Angelina. Um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, I, I've never shied away from the um, uh, what seems impossible. Uh, maybe I should, but uh, but I never did, and uh, um, and I just assume that if people are invested in the characters, whether they like what happens to them or not, they will at least understand what happened, why it happened, and maybe feel sympathy for them because of it. Uh, and uh, what I what I did to try to make more sympathy for Angelina, taking my cue from uh, Frank Gilroy, is that it's clear that she cannot have children of her own. So this son who shows up at this apartment, this young man in his 20s who shows up uh, is her husband's only chance for a child. She can't provide him with children. And uh, also um, he is 20 years older than she, the husband is 20 years older than she. She was forced into the marriage by her aunt because they were, uh, poor and, uh, uh, and they, they needed to be saved and he saved them. So, so there's a devotion there to that. But, um, but it's really about what happens when uh, the truth suddenly appears and everything has gone along a certain way for so long and now everything's changed and how do you adapt and what do you do? So I, I didn't think it was so far off from what people could 
uh, you know, take in uh, uh, in the story. In other words, you didn't have to be, you know, a lover of Greek tragedy to be able to invest in the characters. Um, I'd love to see it done again, but you know, hey, we got we got great reviews. Uh, I will tell you, the reviews are great, and uh, and it broke my heart that it didn't go uh, further after that production. Oh yeah. Well, maybe, maybe yeah, someday. You wrote a song for that musical called Vida na Croce, which was like right. sort of a church song. And right. then you also wrote what was essentially Klezmer music, Second Avenue Rag for your <laughs> other show. So how do you sort of manage to write so vividly in two very different? Well, and before Barry Kleinbart has a chance to answer that question, here is Second Avenue Rag. say about that is um, uh, composers are dramatists and uh, so they look at what at what is you know uh, with Angelina I knew I was dealing I actually set the play earlier than Gilroy did Gilroy had had, had it taking place in 1967 and I made a point to set it in 1963 before Kennedy's assassination because after Kennedy's assassination, the country changed. And I wanted it to be a time that was not about that. And so I knew it was the early 1960s that influenced the music that I used because there is there is some rock and roll pastiche and stuff in the score as well as the stuff that, that you've heard and uh, tried to create a milieu that is of the period. So Second Avenue, Rag, um, a friend of mine, Alan Nee, who wrote uh, 
the play that became the movie Finding Neverland. And then he went on to write uh, the musical Finding Neverland. And he also wrote, I think, the book to Little Women. He wrote the book to Little Women. But he had a play off Broadway called Second Avenue Rag. It was set in New York on the Lower East Side in 1905. And he asked me, because we knew each other and we wanted to write together, he said, would I do the incident? They wanted original incidental music. And since it was about a star of the Yiddish theater, would I write a few songs that the actress who was playing the role would lip sync on stage she, because they hired a woman who could not sing. And, um, uh, and um, she would have to learn how to lip sync three songs that I wrote for the character, but it was all on tape. So the, the director of the play, Steve Kaplan, I, I said, well, I, I need to get somebody to sing the songs. And he said, oh, my wife can do it. So I went, your wife. Okay, so I am like dreading this. So in comes Catherine, his wife. And uh, I said, oh, so you're gonna sing these songs? And she said, yeah. And she says the first one, I said, do you read music? She said, yeah, sorta. So we went over the first one and this glorious instrument came out of her mouth and I went, I'm a fool. <laughs> I had already assumed that it was nothing but nepotism, but she was fantastic. And she's still a very dear friend of mine, Catherine King Siegel. And, uh, but she just knocked me out. Uh, and the actress, Julie Garfield, who was John Garfield's daughter, played the role. And I want to tell you, she lip synced brilliantly. You would not think it was somebody else's voice. She had a way of turning so that the light hit her a certain way and, and you weren't looking at her mouth. You were looking at the whole, you know, the whole visage, the whole thing. And she just made you believe that that was coming out of her. That was one of the best jobs of that that I've, that I've ever seen. So, so Lower East Side, all the characters are Jewish, Yiddish theater, what am I gonna write? Well, Ragtime was just starting out at that time and becoming assimilated. And uh, I, had, I knew this great guy, Jack Bashko, who played with a klezmer band. And I said, Jack, you're coming with me. <laughs> and we went into a studio. And he was fantastic. And, um, and I said, so this is Jewish ragtime, which is what Klezmer, Klezmer pretty much is. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how you write these things because, you know, so you suddenly, what do you know? Minor key, you know, it should sound like something that came from the old country. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so it was really fun for me because again, I'd never written that kind of music. So even though I had heard it growing up, but I'd never, never written it. And so it was really fun to write Second Avenue, uh, Second Avenue Rag. And, and this is the irony. The New York Times came to review the show and I got the best review of the, of the whole show <laughs> for, the, for the music. And I, I was so embarrassed to talk to Alan after reading the Times review. <laughs> So, uh, but nonetheless, I was happy that it was appreciated. So that, so, so every show, and I think it's true for, you know, th there are two different ways. You'll understand this, Charles. Directors, the same thing. One of the things about musical directors like Jerome Robbins and Bob Fosse, Bob Fosse had a style. 
And it didn't matter what the show was. He put his style onto the material because it was the Fosse style. Robbins was not that kind of a director. He looked at what the show was and he figured out what he needed to do and what the style would be, which was dictated by the show. And I'm not putting down Fosse because I think he was brilliant and he understood so much about how to make a show come to life. Um, but, but he knew what he did and that was his style. Um, Robbins was harder to pinpoint. It's the same way I feel about composers. There are certain composers who do what they do and because it's their, it's their thing and they do it and the material, it doesn't matter if it's said in you know, uh, Africa or if it's set on the moon, it's gonna have their imprint of what they musically do. And then there are other people who are, were just uh, chameleons. I think Cy Coleman was probably the most chameleon of Broadway composers, if I was to say of anybody, because um, uh, his scores, if you look at that, from Wildcat and Little Me and On the 20th Century and Will Rogers Follies, and then you have The Life, and you have City of Angels, and I mean, he was writing operetta, and he was writing jazz, and, and he was writing musical comedy, and he was writing country western, and he, you know, and then I Love My Wife, I mean, he was trying, he, he, it just all, you know, he just uh, diversified, but to the demands of what the show uh, required, and that's what I, as a composer, that's what I try to do. I try to find out what's the, even as a lyricist, especially just what is the, what, what's the coinage? What are people saying? How do people speak? What, what's, what's arcane? What is, what's, you know, I mean, just really just try to try to figure that out. Um, uh, Dorothy Fields, who was a great lyricist, always wanted to be up to the minute. And she would walk around with a notepad and she would always try to find out what the current expressions were that everybody was using. And she'd write them down and she tried to work them into songs so that she always sound up to date. So when she wrote things like, I don't pop my cork for every guy I see, that's, that's her writing on a, on a pad. <laughs> so, so I'm just saying, so that, that's what we try to do. Um, and we try to grow I think from project to project. We, we, we not only try to meet the demands of the project, but we try to challenge ourselves and take ourselves further. Um, uh, are you a fan of Harold Rome? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I spent an afternoon with Harold Rome that was, was life-changing really. But one of the things I asked him is I said, um, did you make a concerted effort to make each score more sophisticated than the one before. And he looked at me and I said, well, did you? And he said, you're the first person to ever ask me this. And he said, yes. And he said, I continued to study music until I was in my late seventies. I've written symphonies and classical pieces that nobody has ever heard. But he said, I made it a point to make each show take me further than the one before it. And he loved that somebody actually noticed it. <laughs> but I was glad that, that it was, a, 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 he actually had because it really informed me to want to do the same thing. 
and to try to say, okay, I haven't done this before. How do I get, how do I get here by, you know, how can I push the envelope a little bit here for myself? Uh, it's every project has got to be interesting for yourself. It can't just be interesting also for the, I mean, it's great if it's interesting for the audience, but it also has to be interesting for you because you spend so long on every project, you know, uh, seven years from, from inception to, to production is roughly the equation. So, um, so you got to love it a lot. <laughs> so that being said, do you do a lot of sort of research of listening to the music of the time or the genre? Yes, uh, some of it, but then there's a point where you just say, okay, I get it, and now um, I can move on to that. The Vidi Na Croce thing in Angelina, to mention that, was that it was a, a, the first part was a lyric that was in the script. And when I met with Frank at the uh, Oak Room, I said, what's the significance of Vidi Na Croce? And he said, what? And I said, the significance of the song Vidi Na Croce. And he said, oh, well, we needed a song in Italian and I picked that one. So I said, nothing else? He said, no. And, and I said, okay, well, I'm gonna make something of that because what it means is I saw the cross, Vidi Na Croce. And um, so it is, a, it is a religious thing, but I said, this is the neighborhood ladies, the, the um, uh, disapproving neighborhood ladies, the neighborhood ladies who lean out on their balconies and they see everything that's going on. And if something seems naughty or not right because of their deep religious beliefs, they're gonna, they're gonna call the cops. So uh, that became a main thrust for me. I have no idea how the actual melody goes. He couldn't remember it and I couldn't find a recording of it. And so I made up my own. So, so uh, that, but that's again, I tried to find out more about it. There was nothing more to be found out about it. So then what you have to do is you just have to create, yeah. you know? And, and if it sounds like what it is, that's, that's good enough. You know, Richard Rogers always said, if he had written a real Siamese score, a real Thailand score for the King of I, King I, the Broadway audience would never have been able to sit through it. Yeah. So, so he used the pentatonic scale and he said, I'm gonna make it sound like it is, but it isn't. And, and, and I'd say that that's true of most Broadway music. It sounds like it is, but it isn't. <laughs> So you've written many shows and some of them have been with other lyricists and some of them you've written the lyrics. So when do you sort of decide when to work with someone else? Or um, well, interestingly about that, um, uh, I, I think it has to do, I, I, I really, mostly I, I would say uh, I've written lyrics to other people's music and one of the reasons for that is that I think it's very hard to find good lyricists and I think people really uh and I was never opposed to working with another composer uh but it had to be a project I was interested in so that I wasn't going to do my own music and I had to learn something from the experience by working with that composer as well and um and I think I'm a good collaborator because I, the whole the whole trick of collaboration is being able 
to see the big things. Hal Prince talked about this. He said, what makes a good collaboration when you do a musical? He says, you've got to see the big things the same. He said, you can fight on all of the little things. He said, but if you don't agree on the big things, the show will never come together. It will never happen. And I think that's true of writing partners. You've got to see the big picture and you go, I want to do that. And even if you negotiate on the little things, you, you're, you're going in the same direction. Otherwise, you're going in two different directions and the music and the words do not fit. Um, uh, Joseph Thalken, who wrote the music to Was, uh, he approached me about writing together. He had gotten my name from a mutual friend, Dorothy Stanley, a Broadway uh, uh, actress. Uh, and uh, she had said, you should write with Barry. And, and I knew Dottie for years and she had been in the night of my songs. And, uh, and she, she said, she, she, she loved my writing. And she, so she said to Joe, she said, you two should get together. So we, we tried to figure out what the project was, couldn't come up with anything we wanted to write together. And I went up to Boston, this is true, I went up to Boston for a friend's wedding and I had finished my book on the ride up, so I had to buy a new book for the ride back. So I went into a bookstore uh, and uh, right before getting on the train, and there was a remaindered copy of the book Was by Jeff Ryman. And I had remembered reading the Times Review of it. And I said, oh, this is something I want to read. So I started reading it on the train ride back from Boston to New York. And by the time I got to New York, I called Joe and I said, I'm reading a book right now. I'm going to give it to you because you are going to want to turn it into a musical. And, and he said, well, I won't be able to, he said, I'm flying tomorrow somewhere and he's uh, to do an, hear an orchestration. It was out West. And he said, I won't be able to read it for, for days. And I said, okay. I got a call the day after he left and he said, I started on the plane. I want to do this. Where can we get the rice? <laughs> I mean, there are certain things where a, a, you know, a bell goes off. Um, and and he said, why do I, he said, why do you think I want to make a musical of it? I said, because it seems impossible. <laughs> and, uh, and indeed, it, it was a pretty daunting task. Uh, the plot of was, for those who've never read the book, is um, it's what might have been the true story of Dorothy Gale as a young girl growing up in Kansas who met L. Frank Baum when he was a teacher a substitute teacher in her class, and she told him the details of her life, of her miserable life. And he turned those details into The Wizard of Oz, in a sense, to make up for the life she never had. Yeah. And that was the idea of was. And then that there are two stories that take place a hundred years apart. Then the that's in the 1800s, and then in the 1900s, there is an actor named Jonathan, who is uh, obsessed with the Wizard of Oz, and he hears that Dorothy Gale really exists existed, and he gets on a plane and goes to Kansas and tries to find proof of her existence. And so you have these two storylines, and you know somehow they're going to have to come together. Uh, and be emotionally satisfying, um, and uh, uh, and so that was that was that was the challenge. 
Um, again, we went so so to get the rights to was 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 we went a very circuitous route. Uh, could not find out who held the stage rights. I finally contacted Jeff Ryman's agent who lived in London, and Maggie Noack was her name. And she said, you are in luck. The stage rights just elapsed. He had allowed a play version of the novel to be done. And he said, the rights have just rescinded back to us. They're yours if, uh, you know. So I said, okay, I'm coming to London, which I was. I was coming to London to work on something. And I said, I'm going to meet with you. And I met with them. And I said, so I pulled the Frank Gilroy. I said, let us work on was for six months for no money. Bless Frank Gilroy for, for no money. And we'll demonstrate our work. And then you let us know what you think. So uh, we worked on our audition. And then we flew over to London. We rented a, a hall in a church. We invited Jeff and his agent. We played uh, we wrote five songs, three of which stayed in the show. We wrote five songs. Um, they were sold and gave us the rights. And, uh, and we've had uh, two productions of Was since, since then. Um, and uh, uh, and it, it, there's so much that's right in that show, I have to tell you. The problem with it was uh, we opened Was at the same time that Wicked was opening on Broadway. And uh, we could not escape uh, people. Uh, so many people just didn't want to touch it because of the wicked thing. The shows could not be different, uh, by the way. Um, uh, uh, and, and what they have to say could not be different because what was is about is uh, what I thought the show was about was that everybody needs a little magic in their life to get through the hard times. They need a little hope, whatever you want to call magic. We mm -hmm. all need something to get us through. And that became what the show was about. And, um, and we thought the ending was very uplifting because of that. Um, I think Joe did a wonderful job uh, on the music. Uh, and we had a, a great working relationship because um, he would play me like this. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing this is the way like Bach and Hardigan people work is like, you know, Joe would play me a scrap of a melody and I'd say, I need another eight measures or another 16 measures to make a song out of it because there's not enough there to, to shape the melody. And we would really go up and back. I, I, think, I think that's one of the things that makes me a good collaborator because I'm also a songwriter and therefore I'm hearing things compositionally um, and maybe not hearing them the way that Joe hears them, but I still hear a kind of a shape. So, so then I know what I need in terms of building blocks to be able to put a song together. So, uh, uh, and, uh, and that was really how we wrote. Um, and, um, and we wrote a lot of songs for Was. Oh my gosh. I, the number of songs that went in and, out, in and out of that show, if the show had ever been a hit, we were gonna do a review at 54 Below called Wasn't because we had so many songs that were never used and we just were gonna do an evening of all the ones we wrote that were discarded. I, I mean, it's, you know, Fiddler, they had 20 discarded songs, I think. And I, I'm thinking we had at least 30. And some of them were really wonderful. And, uh, and for whatever, whatever reason, we, we, the show suddenly went in a different direction. The song stopped working, you have to take it out. You have to put in something else. Um, uh, but I still think there's, 
there's a really powerful piece in there. Um, uh, we, we did a, a two week workshop of was at Lincoln Center. That was our first go around. It was directed by Tina Landau, who directed um, um, uh, SpongeBob SquarePants on Broadway, as well as a whole lot of other things. Um, and uh, she did a wonderful job. We had a, a stellar cast. It was uh, Malcolm Getz, was Jonathan, and uh, uh, oh, uh, Phyllis Somerville, the late Phyllis Somerville, wonderful actress, was uh, Dorothy as an old woman. Uh, she was terrific, and Barbara Walsh was in it, and uh, it was it was it was a it was quite a group. Uh, Andrea Burns. It was it was a wonderful assortment of people, uh, and and it was two of the happiest weeks of my whole life playing in that Lincoln Center sandbox. I got to tell you, uh, we just we were fearless. We we tried everything, and uh, uh, and part of the problem. Again, it was a dark show. And 9-11 um, derailed was a little bit because uh, Lincoln Center felt that they didn't want to do dark shows. And they had done a show that Susan Stroman had asked them to do with, that Harry Connick had written the music for. Do you know this show? Yeah, it's Thou Shalt Not. Thou Shalt Not. And uh, I didn't know if you'd ever heard it or not. Um, uh, it was a, it, you know, it made was look like, like a picnic. I mean, it was a really dark show. <laughs> and, and I remember at the time they felt, uh, it, it, the audience did not want to see, see it, a dark show. And they felt they couldn't pursue was at that point because, uh, it wasn't, the time wasn't right. Yeah. And uh, and I think that's a, always a problem is trying to figure out when when is the right time to do a show and when it when it isn't, you know. So before we continue with the interview, let's have another little musical break and hear three songs from Was. The first will be the title song Was, which is performed again by Rita Gardner. The second will be Lucky Day, performed by Howard McGillan and Roger Bart. And the final will be On to the Next One, performed by Danny Burstein. Here they are. When I'm alone and feeling sad Cause life seems hard to bear I go where life is fine and fair I journey me to Was For Was is such a perfect place It's never cold or gray And childhood friends come out to play we laugh and smile, and for a while, I'm happy there, so happy there. In was they don't know names to hurt you. The skies are blue, and cares are few, and nothing dies. So no one can desert you. I beg to stay, but when I do, the faces disappear. And I awake to find 
I'm here If only it could last But nothing does Oh, what I'd give To always live in If only it could last Oh, what I'd give to always Feeling down and out Didn't know what life was all about A loner in the desert without a map Every hope I had was gone Seems my dream account was overdrawn And then a miracle happened Lucky day, suddenly sweet surprise Lucky day, bringing me brighter skies Now I'm over feeling blue Got the will to see me through since the lucky day that I found you So I'm just a big schlemiel Let them go and show the final reel I'll take you over Streisand And that's a lie You incense me, I'll admit Every time you're late I say that's it But what's the use of denying Lucky day, wearing a sheepish grin So I'll stand around and stew That's the thing I like to do Since the lucky day that I found you Well, now that I'm finally here, sheepish grin and all any ideas? Hey, there's a late show of The Wizard of Oz at the Union. Ah, oh, sorry, Jonathan, but I'm just not in the mood for munchkins. I'd rather just get some dessert. Dessert? Didn't you just devour an enormous box of raisinets? That was dinner. Oh, when you're with me, let me state I don't know where I am. A travesty, call it fate. The Hebrew and the ham. We're flying loose, running wild, and heading God knows where. But one thing's clear, very clear, it's clear that we're an improbable pair. Okay, so where do we go for dessert? Your place. My place? It's a shorter trek than Oz. On the way we'll buy some Haagen-Dazs And half a dozen bagels Bagels? Well, I don't know about you, but I happen to like a bagel with my morning coffee Love 
lucky day. Now wait just a minute. Oh, okay, we'll get English muffins. <laughs> Suddenly, sweet surprise. Ira, be serious. You want serious? All right. Won't you let me spend the night? Jesus, Jonathan, I've, I've just put all my cards on the table. Your move. I don't know what to say. Why don't you start with taxi? Ira, you're impossible. Oh, come on, Jonathan. Do you think I went up to you in old Griffin's class because I wanted to look at your lecture notes? <laughs> oh, hell, Jonathan. Never mind. It was just a stupid idea. Forget it. I'll see you around. No, wait. If, if I were to ask you to spend the night, Mr. Bernstein, what would you say? I'd have to call my mother. What? Well, Jonathan, it's not a joke. Honest. She worries when I don't come home at night. So shoot me. I'm a considerate son. Does that change anything? Tell her we're getting bagels. <laughs> Lucky day. Suddenly sweet surprise. Suddenly sweet surprise. Lucky day. Bringing me brighter skies. Bringing me brighter skies. Now I'm over feeling blue. Feeling blue. Got the will to see me through. See me through. Since the lucky day that I'm lucky day, suddenly sweet surprise. Since the day I found lucky day, bringing me brighter skies. Go make your phone call. I'll wait for you right here. You are waiting for me. Boy, is my mother gonna love that? I'm an extra lucky guy. Since the lucky days that I Pursuit, hard work, God knows. Nightly feasting on the fruit that someone throws right at you. Bravo, or you get the boot. That's how it goes. Although it's quite a thrill being on the bill, it's hard to hone your skill when nothing's in the till. So you pack up your grease paint, the wigs and disguises, for as one curtain falls, hopefully another one rises. And so it's 
On to the next one, on to the next one, that simple thought prevails. One day you star in the maid of R, and next day you're riding the rails. Head for Toledo, roles guaranteed, Othello and Romeo. Outside of Dayton, the sheriff's waiting, no time for stopping, let's go. You hike to Akron to play a matinee, your heart gaily hums, but then no one comes. Crumbs. And so you pack up your brio, quickly you flee Ohio for Iowa. Cast off the hexed one, onto the next one, onto the next new play. Trusting you find one. But if you don't, well, that's when you write your own. I went and authored The Maid of Arran, making sure to give myself a juicy part in it, and even a musical solo to do in front of the oleo curtain. Ah, that was a lovely little moment. I wish you could have seen me soaking up all that limelight. Our love is like a silver strand, a strand by angels spun. Yet strong as any silver band we wear till time is done. I tell you, my little companions, whenever I stood there and warbled that ditty, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Of course, after we found out that someone had run off with the box office receipts, there wasn't a dry eye backstage either. What'll you do now, Frank? You gonna stay here and become a teacher? Well, maybe this week, my inquisitive friend, but next week, who knows what I'll be, or where. It's always on to the next one, on to the next one. Hurry, you'll miss the train. Then in a blur, see New York and Jersey, off to a tent in Newark or Trenton. Farewell to Saratoga, hello to Buffalo. Be a vexed one, it's on to the next one, on to the next wonderful show. So when you were writing the lyrics for Was, how did you sort of manage to create a different diction or a different way of speaking for the characters in the 1800s and the characters in the 1900s? Absolutely. Uh, I, I tried to use words that were uh, sounded uh, a little more formal or a little more rustic for the 1800s and words that were a little more plain speak and slangy for the 20th century. I made a concerted effort on that. And uh, uh, and interestingly enough, when I wrote the, the lyric to the title tune to Was, uh, I, I, I wrote, um, uh, when I'm alone and feeling sad because life is hard to bear, I, I go where life is fine and fair. I journey me to Was, I journey me to Was. And uh, there were people who said to me, journey me? And I said, yeah, this is a woman from 1878. And, and that was one of those moments where I said, I journey me to us that I went, that is not, nobody in the 20th century would talk like that. But yeah. a woman who grew up in the late 19th century would have used that kind of uh, expression. And, 
So there were little things that didn't disrupt the flow, but that are there if you look for them. And uh, and that was and that lyric to was is one of the ones that I feel really pure life. Um, and was and no matter what the production, that moment always brought the house down. It was one of those things that you could just feel the whole audience just reach out for this woman. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. and then then the song "Time," which I sent you a couple of. I, time, time is one of those songs that. Uh, Joe and I have gotten several recordings of, and it's just fascinating that we've gotten all these recordings for a show that still has never, you know, other than Lincoln Center has ever played New York. <laughs> you know, that that's the odd part of the business. Um, but that is more of an example of trying to write a contemporary lyric for a 20th century character, as opposed to something for the 19th century. You have to, you really have to pay attention to I think lyricists really do pay attention to um, when they look at their characters, they look at, at um, how smart they are, how savvy they are, how in, uh, uh, um, um, sophisticated they are, how uh, um, educated they are. I mean, there are just things you have to just say, um, what, what do we know about this person? You know, and what, and what, what, by what they say, what does the audience know about this person? What can, and you know, I once did a, you would love this. I did a, a lecture at a university in, in Miami. I said, can I come and talk to uh, your class? It was a class of singers, musical theater singers. And I said, I want to do a class on lyrics. And I said, I don't think singers know how to look in a lyric and understand what's there. And, uh, and the teacher said to me, what do you mean? And I said, well, I said, if a lyric is well-written, there's so much information in that lyric that it's all there. Even if you don't hear the music, the words alone will tell you so many things about that character. And also, I don't think people see where the rhymes are. I'm amazed at the number of singers who learn songs incorrectly because they can't see where where the rhyme is and 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 you know well you know uh that drives me crazy <laughs> because you know you've worked so hard to try to create this sense of flow through rhyme and uh so i gave them i printed out a bunch of lyrics and i made sure they were songs that nobody in the class would know because uh, if they already knew they would tell you everything about it but i said it had to be things that they didn't know and i said okay Here's the lyric. Okay, what do you know about the person who sings this song? And I remember one of the ones I gave them was Night Song from Golden Boy. And I said, tell me what you know. Where, do, where does the, is this male, female? And they all went male. I said, city, country. They said, city. Uptown, downtown. They said, uptown. I said, what time of year is it? It's the first word, summer. What time of night is it? Because I didn't tell them the title, but they, it's all there in the lyric. What's his problem? Talk about his problem. And we started to discuss and they were shocked at how much was in that lyric that they could glean without knowing the show or the person, the, the character of the person who was singing it. They just got it from the lyric. And um, I, that's really good lyric writing. Yeah. So...
I want to ask you about adapting a book as you did for this show. What would you say for you is the difference between reading a book and really enjoying it and then reading a book and saying this should be a musical that I'm going to write? Yeah, okay, well, one of the things uh, that's tricky about a book uh, and about a musical. And Jeff Ryman came to see our production of Was at Northwestern. We were the first production of this American musical theater project in Northwestern and uh, he came to see it. And he says, you know, he said, when you write a book, he says an audience, a, re a, reader, a reader will give you about the first 60 or 70 pages and they're either with it or not, or they put it down and then they pick it up again and they look and they see whether they want to continue or not, but it's at their own time. And he said, you don't have that option in a musical. People have to be grabbed in the first 10 minutes or they're not going to go along on the journey. So you've got to get them right up front. You don't have the luxury of time. That's also true for, for lyric writing as well. You know, um, a lyric has to be, you get a because you can't yell at the actors and say, what, I didn't get that, would you say it again? No, yeah. you only get one crack at it. And so it's gotta be understandable, comprehensible immediately. And then, uh, whereas a poem, which you can take your time, you could say, well, I don't understand this. Wait a minute, I, I'm a poem, you read at your own time and you figure out how to get through it. Lyrics are immediate and they've got to grab you immediately. It's the same thing with translating from a book a novel to the, to the play is how do you cut to the chase? How do you get everybody on board when you don't have the luxury of time? And, um, and it's really hard. There is a flaw in was, and it's in the novel. And Jeff Ryman told me it's in the novel, <laughs> a little late, but, but, but it is, the question is, and this has been what we have been trying, what we've been grappling with is, why does Jonathan go to Kansas to try to find proof of Dorothy Gale? He said, in my book, I never explain it. It's not there. It, it isn't. And he said, uh, but he said, there's enough other stuff to keep you going that he says is to keep you off balance and say, oh, stop thinking about that. Just go, just go along with it. Yeah. He said, I have the luxury of doing that. He says, you don't. They want to know right up front, why is this guy going? We have tried so many different versions of trying to explain that thing because it's the thing that makes the audience want to follow him. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I don't know that we've been entirely solved it, but we've gotten, uh, the last rewrite was, was, was pretty good. It's pretty close, I have to say. And, uh, but that is, that's in the source material. It just becomes more, uh, visible when you pare it down and you only have these small small parts of it. Um, there's a whole third track in the novel of Was that we didn't even use, which has to deal with the life of Judy Garland. And there's a whole thing with, with um, a makeup girl following Judy Garland to the set and filming The Wizard of Oz. And you follow Judy Garland's story. And I said, we don't have the time to to do all of these stories. So I made a very concerted effort to just keep it to two stories and see how these two worlds come together. Uh, and, uh, and so that, that's the difficulty, you know, uh, uh, 
a novel is, is 500 pages, 600 pages. You know, you're lucky if you get a hundred of those pages on a stage, you know, and, and, and making time for all the other elements, the singing and, and movement and, and uh, whatever else there is. So, so uh, the storytelling. So it's a plays, uh, uh, Oscar Hammerstein said to Sondheim when, when uh, 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 I mean, it's famously recorded that he said, good plays don't make good musicals. He said that, um, he said, flawed pieces, he said, make better musicals because you're not trying to just make the same thing. You're taking elements and you're trying to make something better out of what was already there. And uh, I think that's part of the problem of what happened to Broadway is this whole idea of taking successes and then just making another success out of something that was a success. Um, uh, the averages are not good in terms of, because people say, well, it's still not as good as the movie or it's not as good as the play or it's, you know, I mean, there are exceptions, but mostly, mostly not. So, so uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so you were mentioning some of the actors who were in that original was, and yeah. you seem to have almost sort of a rep company of actors who do your work a lot like Rita Gardner and Danny Burstein and Brent Barrett and other people like that. So yeah. who are sort of your favorite actors to interpret your songs? Oh, well, you know, they all bring different things. Uh, Danny uh, got involved with was because of Joe. Uh, they're very oh. good friends. Uh, Brent, I, I, I've known for many years and Brent, uh, uh, I, I did, I put together cabaret shows for Brent, so we go back uh, uh, a long time. Uh, I love the way Brent sings and I love the way he interprets. Um, uh, uh, Rita also, I worked with uh, putting together an off-Broadway off uh, one-woman review for her called Try to Remember. Uh, and we got along famously and I got her and she got me <laughs> and uh, uh, so I, I love working with her uh, uh, it's interesting um, anybody uh, well Penny Fuller who you interviewed on the show and Anita Gillette and they, they all um, they're all uh, Rita too and Brent they're all good actors so they they look at the lyric as an actor does. They try to see what's there to tell the story. And then they, uh, they, they add the layer of music onto it, but it's still basically approaching it as an actor does. What, what is the story I'm trying to tell through the song? And um, uh, Penny is a great interpreter of my work because she, she, she knows that I, uh, she understands me and I understand her and that's, I think that it's, um, if you look at writers and who always had this, had uh, singers that they love to hear their, their songs uh, because they say they just understand them. And I think, I think Penny and I understand each other. So I think that, you know, so, and I think that's the element through, if you're asking what element, why do I like to hear people sing my stuff over and over again is because they get it. They really look at what's there and they, they get it. And so that, um, uh, uh, and when you have that connection, um, it's shorthand. It becomes the, the next song. It's easier to hand the song and say, okay. Um, so, um, and it was because of my, uh, again, uh, Penny 
was the one who asked me to do 13 things about Ed Carpalotti. I didn't approach mm -hmm. her. It was, that was, she was, you know, it was her, her uh, uh, idea to do it. And could you tell us more about how 13 things about Ed Carpalotti first came to be? Uh, so I got summoned to Penny's apartment. <laughs> we were teaching at the O'Neill uh, Theater Center in Connecticut. And we had taught there for seven summers. And this was going to be our seventh summer. And every year we did something different, a different kind of a cabaret or something together. And she said, I've got an idea. And she said, come over to my apartment. So I went over to her apartment. She said, sit down. I did. She said, I'm going to read you something. So she read me this monologue. And I said, oh. So when it was over, she said, well, what do you think? I said, it's very nice. And then she said, I think you should make this into a musical for me. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> so she said, well, why not? And I said, well, because there's nothing musical about it. And she said, oh, you'll think of something. <laughs> and I went, right. So I said, well, okay. I said, I'm not gonna touch this unless Jeff Hatcher, Jeffrey Hatcher, who wrote the monologue approves this because I said, I don't want to start working on this. And then he says, I'm not it. So she said, okay. And this monologue was a piece that um, Penny had done at Manhattan Theater Club. It was part of, it was, it was three monologues, an evening called Three Viewings. And she had one of the monologues and Buck Henry had one of the monologues. And all of them were set in a funeral parlor. All three monologues were set at three different funerals. So it was called Three Viewings. And it was the play that brought Penny back to New York from California. And she was so happy to be back here. So she always had a fondness for this piece. So I get a call from Penny. She says, Jeffrey Hatcher is coming to New York. And uh, I set up breakfast and the three of us are gonna have breakfast. Okay. So we get together for breakfast. We're all eating, la la la. And then Penny goes, okay, Jeffrey, I want to do a musical of 13 things about Ed Carpalotti and which was the name of her, her section. And she says, and he's going to write it. And Jeffrey went, okay. <laughs> and then he left. So, so, so I said to Petty, I'm now going to translate Jeffrey's okay. He is saying, I give you permission and I want to have nothing to do with it. <laughs> and I said, that's the deal. Okay, fine. So, she said, we should premiere this at the O'Neill. Instead of doing a cabaret, we'll do this for our seventh summer and we'll do it as a, a reading for the audience. So we knew we had a deadline. We knew we had to do it. And uh, uh, I, so I took the monologue, she, gave, she printed it out and gave it to me. And I read it over and over and over. And I said, I don't see how you can add music to this. I don't get it. It doesn't make any, it's just this thing that is perfectly composed by itself. So one day as I'm reading this thing, the woman, Virginia Carpolati, whose husband has just died. And, um, and in the interim, she has discovered many things about her husband that she did not know. And, and basically has left her $3 million in debt. And the debt is coming, uh, is owed very soon. Anyhow, Jeffrey had 
Virginia's collarbone, a collarbone turned bright red whenever she got nervous. She would, she, she'd do this and she'd go, oh. she knows she's nervous because she can feel that her collarbone is, is burning up. I said, well, what happens if instead of her collarbone getting red, she hummed? And that was the crack in the door because it was a musical idea. I knew that humming was at least music. And there was a reason that she was using music. It was to get her through difficult times. And using the humming instead of the collarbone, that started the ball rolling. And then I started to see where numbers might happen and try to see how music becomes the device that gets her calm. Uh, and then I looked, the, the play ends with this list of 13 things. And I said, what happens if the songs um, magnify the things that are in the list? That helped me to figure out what moments would be big enough as a song that would resonate with an audience so that when she got to the list at the end, they would really be in on it because we'd really set it up. And I changed some things in the list just so that the musical moments would match what I wanted to happen with the list. So, um, uh, so we tried out the, our version of it at, um, uh, at the O'Neill. Uh, we really felt there was something there. We didn't know, but we felt there was something there. Um, and this, uh, you'll find this interesting, Charles, uh, which is that People don't know what you do when you do too many things. People have to pigeonhole everybody. It's, it's, it's just an easy way to remember people is by putting them in a certain category. Um, so those people who knew me as a special material writer, because I wrote a lot of special material songs for a lot of people like Marsha Lewis and Kay Ballard and people like that, didn't think I was a serious songwriter. People who heard my serious songs didn't think I could write a funny song. Uh, people who knew me as a teacher at the O'Neill didn't think I could do either. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't know what to do with it. So here I am doing this musical with, you know, uh, with Penny. And this woman who has been up there for seven summers comes up to me the next day and she said, that was fantastic. How on earth did you find those songs that fits so perfectly into that story. I couldn't believe it. I said, I, I didn't have to find them. I wrote them. And she said, you write songs? And that has been the story, that is the Kleinboard story, <laughs> which is if you don't know me that way, then, you know, and I learned a very important lesson, by the way, which is two words that I live by and I, I, want, I want you to memorize these two words. Never assume, they're very important. Never assume that anybody knows what it is you do or who you are or where you've been. There, this is, don't assume. And it is our job to amend what people know about us and build on what they already know and let them understand that we do whatever, whatever somebody thinks I do, I do. And I also do the following things. And because you have to make it clear that they're not wrong because if they yeah. think they're right, then they'll hear what you have to say. 
if you say, well, no, that's not it, then the gate comes down and they'll never hear what you have to say. So I think it's really important. That was a really important thing for me is that I said, even, even now, after seven years, this woman doesn't have any idea what it is I do. And that's, that's, that's the story. So um, we uh, play, we, we leave the O'Neill and we come into the city and we audition the piece for Peter Thier, who was booking 13, I was booking uh, 59 East 59th Street, the three, the three theater complex on 59th and, and Park. And he suddenly calls us and he says, I just had a cancellation in the small theater uh, for December. And he said, would you like to do your show? And suddenly we were doing the show off Broadway. I mean, this was so short from writing to, and, and I said to Penny, I think, I think we're too short. I said, I think the, I said, there's still a main song I have to write and I don't think it's written yet and we're gonna gotta do it. And she said, and she says, well, I like it the way it is. And I said, well, listen, I'm gonna write this song and if you don't like it, you don't have to do it. But it feels to me that the show's not totally complete. So, um, so I, I wrote One More Spring, which was the last song to be written. And I remember playing it for Penny and she started to sing it and she burst into tears. And I said, is this too sad? She says, I gotta do it. No, 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 <laughs> they're tears of joy. I, got, I gotta do this song. And um, so, uh, and I was really glad that that song worked out the way it did because it really brought the journey home. And uh, the proof of that was we did a one night concert of the show as a benefit for the uh, acting company. And there was a woman who came up to me after the performance and she said, I hear you're the writer of this thing. And I said, yes. And she said, and she was really decked out, lots of jewelry and you know furs. And she said, I wanna tell you something. She said, I'm a very wealthy woman. I don't need anything. I've got more money than I know what to do with and I'm set for life. And she said, and I lost my husband two years ago and I heard that song one more spring and I suddenly realized I would give it all, everything I had just to have one more spring with him. And she said, and I don't know how you knew that, but that is true. And I, I was flabbergasted, but that's the power of a song that you don't have any control over and that you may never know. This was just a case of a woman coming up to me and telling me that she, that song resonated with her and she suddenly had something, uh, 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 an experience. Suddenly there were words for something for which she thought there were no words, which is what I think songwriters try to do. We try to create, you know, fill in the gaps for, yeah. for emotions that, that there are no, there, there, you know, there, the terminology isn't there yet. How do we create the terminology? Nonetheless, she's the one who came up to me I don't know if that song affected other people. I hope it did, but that was that was the proof. And uh, and I could, I'll never forget just her pointing that finger at me, and uh, and then again said, "That's why I do this." Yeah, you know, giving voice to things. So you know. So I yeah. want to ask you when you were writing the show so closely, working with Penny Fuller from the beginning, did you sort of write it? toward her talents, especially? Yes, and no. 
<laughs> she, I gotta say, she was great. And in terms of that, she just said, do where you think this is gonna take you. And the first song I wrote <clears throat> was The House on Bray Barton. And um, <clears throat> it was the first thing that spoke to me musically. Uh, it's still my favorite thing in the whole score, I think. Um, and, um, uh, and I remember playing it for her and she, I didn't have the lyric yet. I said, this is just the music. And she said, I don't know what the words are, but it's right. She just said, it sounds right. And she said, I, I, I can hear the words even though I don't know what, it, what they are. And I said, well, that was a case of where I was writing the music first and, and filling in the lyric with it. Um, uh, but then one day I showed up at, uh, uh, at a session. I had written, <clears throat> Jeff, Jeff uh, Hatcher had uh, two lines in the script in which he had the heroine lie to her parents about going to the movies with her best friend Tootie when she really had snuck off uh, with Ed Carpalotti in his Ford and they were making out all night in, in, <laughs> in his car. And she pretended she had gone to see um, uh, a Martin and Lewis movie called My Friend Irma Goes West. And it was, I'm not kidding, it was two lines in the script and that's it. And I said, this is going to become a production. So. And also, as I was writing the show, I didn't want things to have applause. So, but I knew if I kept delaying applause, when there was suddenly a moment to have applause, it would be big. So I wrote this number called At the Liberty Theater, which is Virginia's denial of going out with Ed and explaining the plot of a film that she never saw. She's making it all up on her feet and she's trying to convince her, par her parents that this was the movie, even though she never went. And I had her doing impressions of Martin and Lewis and all the other people in the cast and she is just, and, and, and she gets away with it. And the number ends with a button and the audience went crazy because they hadn't applauded for almost 15 minutes mm -hmm. in the show when this happened. And, and it was like, gangbusters because they were just waiting to have a moment to do that. And it's really interesting about the release, about being able to do that. When I showed the number to Penny, the look on her face was not one of happiness. <laughs> she, it was, it was a, you're trying to kill me, Boba. It was, you're, 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 you're going to kill me. And I said, um, what do you think? You know, she was like, ah. I said, I think you got to do it. You got to do it. And I said, you'll be able to do it. She said, I'm not funny. I said, you'll be funny. And uh, we came up with things for, for her to do body-wise. And it was, it was really wonderful. And, and, and uh, that's a case of where she just trusted me to do this because her own instinct would have told her, I'm never getting up there and doing this song. So, and that's the other part of me, which is, that's the wacky part. You know, I, I can do the serious, I can do the one more spring, but I had to do something like at, at the Liberty too, to just, you know, to balance it out for myself. Uh, so yeah, so there were times when she would be in on the discovery of the process, but mostly she trusted me to just go ahead and do it and then show her and then she could decide, you know, what she thought about how, how she felt. Um, but that's a trust issue, you know, and we knew each other well enough that she trusted me.
Um, yeah, so wild. <laughs> so when you're writing music as well as lyrics for a show, do you think that that makes it easier or harder? Okay, well, I always tell this story because uh, Cole Porter was asked what he thought of Rodgers and Hammerstein. And he said, I think they're great if you can believe it takes two people to write a song. <laughs> so so uh, uh, there's something that's easier because you hear the words and the music almost simultaneously. One, even if you write a line, it's, it's giving you a musical feel because you're actually feeling the rhythm of the words. And then the music starts dictating the next direction of the lyric. So you're actually working two different sides of the brain and you're, you're trying to put them together into one song. Mm -hmm. uh, when I worked with Joe, um, sometimes he said, uh, he said, I like setting things. So he said, write a lyric and, uh, and then um, I'll set it. And so of course I'm writing a lyric and I'm hearing a tune in my head. And then he'd come up with something that matched not at all to what I had, but I also had to listen to what he was doing because he was coming from where it was coming from him. And then I had to see where do we fit in the same place and how do we become one yeah. uh, as a lyric and, mu and music. And when we um, auditioned the songs for was for Tom Cott at Lincoln Center, he said, you are one of the first teams of songwriters who have walked into this room who sound like one voice. He said, I can't tell you how long it's been since I've had two come in who sound like one. And that was because we did our job. We really, we really understood that complexity and we were able to work with it so that we created something that sounds like that we're united. And I, it was shocking to me that he said that, not because uh, I appreciated the compliment, but that he was saying how many writers teams came in and that was not the case. And then I wonder what's going on, why? Because you know, when we look at the people who write together and we love what, what they do together and how they, how they match, it, it's inconceivable that that isn't the way everybody works. So, so I don't know, but, but we were definitely a rarity, which is why he said, I want this show to go. Uh, he, he really was a champion of ours to make, it, make us do a full workshop. Mm -hmm. um, but, but so is it easier? Uh, you know, um, no, it's all, it, it all takes as much effort. <laughs> it's just you use a different part of the brain. Yeah, I really I think that's it. So, uh, I want to ask you about Big City Rhythm, which was okay. a review of the songs of you. So, right. was this your idea to put together, or? Okay, so what happened was yes, um, I had done a night of my songs as a, a benefit for a group called Hearts and Voices, which. Uh, was helping bring singers into hospitals uh, to help AIDS patients. Um, and it was a night that went great. And somebody said, you know, you really should kind of make this into a review of some kind to just 
you know, so I did it as the thing was, I said, okay, well, we'll do it for one night as a one nighter. Um, and uh, I got to premiere some songs in that show that I had written that had never been heard before. Uh, and I tried to work it out so that there was kind of a story. And the story was that, you know, it's, it's, it's the city, it's people coming to New York. And by the end, some people stay and some people leave. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, you know, rocket science. It wasn't any, anything earth shattering, but it was enough of a hanger to, to put the songs on. And, um, and I was able to use several songs that I had written for a musical version of The Rat Race by Garson Kanan a uh, musical that I never got produced, but <clears throat> which uh, I was, I, I loved writing. I just thought it, it just, uh, it, it just hit me where I lived. Again, it, it was a perfect vehicle for me to, to express myself. So let's pause here to hear a song from that musical, The Rat Race. This is called I Belong and it is performed by Brent Barrett. Like the speck of dust floating in the air, like the blade of grass down in Duffy Square, like the city perfume pungent and strong, I belong. Who would ever guess you would hear me say, this is where I live, and I want to stay here among the crush of concrete and crumb. I am home. Traveled quite a bit, hard to settle down, never seemed to fit, looking for the perfect town. Brother, this is it. Wipe away the past, this is where I fit, where the life is fast and crude. And guess what? I like being rude. Every gimme sounds, sudden summer heat, noises in the hall, garbage on the street. Tell the daily papers one thing is clear. I'm Central, the Chrysler, and now something new. Why, it's me in this model of ten million jerks who stay, though not one payphone works. Hear the city sounds, jubilant and free. I'm a part of them, they're a part of me. Listen, every siren's playing my song. I join the cast. At last, I be who 
And then I was also able to use some of the special material. I, I convinced, you know, we did it as a one-nighter. So we, and we did two performances in the one night, uh, sold out both of them. And Marsha uh, Lewis, who was currently on Broadway in Chicago as Mama Morton. Uh, uh, so it was her night off. She agreed to do it, come and do one of the roles. And then it was Eric Michael Gillette, who's been in several Broadway shows and Melanie Vaughn, who was in the original Sunday in the Park with George, among many other shows, and is a, a pal for many years. And Louis Cleal, who um, I didn't know Louis before the show, but he had been recommended to me and, and he was fantastic. And Louis said to me, he says, I'm not funny. I said, oh, he says, you want me to sing this song, Leading Lady Valentine, which is a song all about all, this guy who loves all the women who can't sing. And he says, I'm not funny. He says, you should get Michael McGraw. Michael McGraw is funny, I'm not funny. So I said, you know what, Lewis, let's try the song. And I said, um, and if I won't make you do it if it's really a disaster, but at least let's run through it. So he finished doing it. And I said, Lewis, I've got bad news for you. You're funny. <laughs> and I said, none of that, you're really funny. And he stopped the show with, with the song. He was, he was brilliant. But, but I love that he didn't think he was funny. That's, what, that's why it was funny. Yeah. Because he didn't go out there saying, and now I'm gonna be funny. He just, he just made it happen. So we did it for a couple performances. Um, it was, people loved it. They said, you need to do more performances. So we started doing more performances. We got critics to come in and review. Um, and so we ran it for a bunch of performances. And then that got the album recorded. We were one of the first uh, albums on Harbinger Records. And there's a hilarious story to tell you. Um, the album went you know, around the world or whatever. So I, I, one day I get a call from a woman in Florida and she says, hi. She said, is this Barry Kleinberg? And I said, yes. And she said, I'm with this theater in Florida. And she said, I'd love to do Big City Rhythm as our uh, show. And I said, oh, so then uh, I said, um, great. I said, I'll put the materials together. And she said, oh, uh, oh one thing. She said, um, can we do it with a smaller cast? So I said, uh, well, there's four people in the cast. What do you have in mind? Three? She says, smaller. So I said, two? She said, well, she said, uh, you see, with four people, we lose money. With three people, we break even, and with two people, we make money. So I said, well, I said, uh, I have to think about it, but you know, the opening number is a three-part counterpoint, and I'm, just, I'm not sure how you're gonna do that with only two people. And there was a long silence. <laughs> and then she said, I'll get back to you. I never, I never heard from her again. <laughs> but what? <laughs> So, so uh, I, I don't know, I don't know. But again, that uh, album and that show made people think about my writing differently because again, people had decided what I did and that show showed, I don't know, I don't wanna say necessarily versatility, but just showed a, a broader, a, a, a bigger palette than than uh, than people had originally thought. 
so so it was um it was a real wonderful window for me to uh um and uh and um but you know it, the, the the strange thing about this business is uh the way things are now things don't necessarily lead to other things you know everybody talks about you know rogers and hart and this you know they did the garrett gaieties and they, they, everyone heard manhattan and so they had a music publisher and suddenly they were writing all these shows and, and the rest is history those days are over so um uh even if lincoln center didn't do a full production of was in another time a theater come uh um, you know our artistic director would say we're not doing the show but we so believe in you we want to encourage you we want to do your next piece whatever it is silence uh, big city rhythm might have led oh and then you know i won the kleban award for for lyric writing i was the third person to win the yeah. kleban award and uh and i said now my life is going to change and and it doesn't it changes in the sense that you know there there's there's a lot of money attached to the kleban award and you do get this lovely check and it and it and it's cat it's cashable and everything it's fantastic but it doesn't necessarily open a door and um, uh, so you have to create opportunities. So everything I think that I've done is about creating an opportunity. So, so uh, writing Angelina was creating an opportunity. Doing Big City Rhythm was an opportunity. Doing 13 Things with Penny was an opportunity. These, we were not asked to do these, we did them. Um, uh, Metropolitan, the the bilingual musical review that that um, what, that uh, Ken Bloom, Christophe Mirambeau, and I did in Paris and in New York. Again, we leapt on a crazy opportunity to write this crazy bilingual musical where the cast had to be fluent in French and English. And um, I mean, it was it was it was, and we did it. We did the performances on a barge in uh, on the river Seine. We, we did we did in the Canal Saint-Martin, we did, we did the performances in this beautiful barge. You went down the stairs in the barge and there was a beautiful little theater with uh, plush red seats and, you know, but it was moored to the, to the dock. And, uh, and there we were singing songs about how silly French people are to a French audience. <laughs> You know, I mean, it was it was it was a pretty uh, pretty ballsy stuff. So, um, uh, but again, it was creating an opportunity, uh, and uh, I think that's I think that's what we do. I mean, no one asked Joe and I to write. Was we we looked for a project, we worked it, we 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 got it on. I I'm, I I have to say, almost everything I've written has gotten on, and I think that's some sort of a miracle. Uh, I remember a writer asking me after I came back from uh, uh, Albany uh, with Angelina, and he said, what did you learn? I said, well, I learned that Angelina cannot be unproduced ever again. I said, this is important. I said, I've actually seen this in front of a paying audience on a stage in front of paying people, not for friends, for people who actually paid money and came to see it. And I got their response from what was up there. And I said, if it never gets produced again, it will never lie in a drawer being unproduced. 
I said, that, I said, anything that happens after that is, is gravy. That's, that's what I learned. And I think that's true of every experience is you have to look at it and say, if nothing further comes from this, what can I say I learned from this experience? And, and you know what, we learn something from everything and it informs our next thing, what, whatever that is. So I'm just saying, so that that's why um, I think I, it's a different time now. I think people have to really want this and create the moments to make them happen. And, um, and you know what, twas ever thus, you know, looking back on the Rogers and Hart days before the Garrett Gaby's, this is just a perfect example. They, they were turned down by everybody. They, they, Manhattan was written for a show that never got produced. And, um, and every musical publisher passed on their material. And so, and they did the Garrett Gaty's for free. It was a benefit for the theater guild. They weren't being paid. They were doing it for free, but they thought, hey, maybe somebody will come to see this and someone will hear our stuff. And, and it worked out, but again, it, it, they were they were creating something for themselves. And I think, so the industry changes, but the basic tenets stay the same. So, uh, you know, everybody wants you when they want you. That's, you know, their time is not your time. So, uh, so you know, you, what, what I find is you stick in there, I mean, uh, and, and learn from it and, and build upon it and figure out what you wanna say. I think the hardest, thing of, of writing is um, worldview, figuring out what the things are that matter to you. And um, they don't have to be profound, but they have to be things that, that are up there because then, then your, your piece has purpose. Your piece has something, there's something going on. Even when, when we wrote Metropolitan, uh, I, I had this idea for the finale, the song Ma Maison, which uh, I said, we've got to somehow make it that no matter where you are, you're home. And uh, and again, not not it wasn't inventing something. It was taking something and creating a new way to express it. Um, and uh, uh, and that always worked in performance. When we got to Mama's Own, people could feel how the two, you know, we had song songs set in Paris and songs set in New York, and yet those two worlds came together at the end and, 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 and music tied it up. So, and that's the stuff is that if, if you, if you really believe in it, it, it resonates, it comes through. Um, you know, I always, I always felt, you know, when people talk about Condon and Green's lyrics, for example, um, when they're being sentimental, they're not manufacturing sentiment. They believe it. So if they write a song like Make Someone Happy, that isn't fabrication. That is, that is uh, their credo. That's a belief. That comes from a real place. And, um, um, and I think that's true for Hammerstein and uh, you know, all these people that, that you can always tell when they're being genuine because it just, it just comes through in, in, in the text. You can, really, you can feel it. Um, Sondheim too. Mm -hmm. 
So, without further ado, let's hear some songs from Metropolitan, sung by the original off-Broadway cast for an album that was never released. We'll first hear the title song, Metropolitan, followed by Ma Maison, followed by Très Chic. Which is in the middle of the city that 
Sometimes it seems that New Yorkers and Parisians will always be separated by more than just an ocean. But then again, they do have one thing in common. After a long trip to a foreign land, often they can't wait to get back to their own apartments, the one place in the world where they feel safe and secure. And there you have it, the final stop dans le métro, home.
I seldom left the neighborhood a block or two no more. The rest of my days were spent inside a flat with a mother, father, daughter, and a cat. I really hate that cat. I wasn't allowed in stores or restaurants or a bar. The theater, illegal. Well, that's cause I'm a beagle. And when you are a canine, that's the way nine out of ten things are. But then last month we journeyed to Paris. The mother, father, daughter, also me. The cat stayed home. For them I knew there'd be lots to do and see. But how great to also find this city lacks my kind. Roof, I'm sitting next to my master in a small cafe. 
How could life be sweeter? So I want to ask you about, you. a lot of your work has been put on CD, although some of it hasn't. So do you yeah. try to record as much of what you write as possible? No, I, I, I'm bad. <laughs> I'm bad. Uh, I, everything should be recorded and known. And uh, maybe someday, maybe someday, maybe, maybe, uh, Charles, you'll get a bunch of people together, and you'll 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 help me uh, get everything down on disc. Um, uh, we 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 recorded Metropolitan, but we never finished the album to release it. And uh, but when I was listening to those unfinished tracks that I sent to you, I said we should put this album out. So I'm hoping to finish it. You know, I, I mentioned it to, to Ken, and I just said I, 
I hope we can finish it because I said it's really worth putting out. I said it was lovely to hear this stuff again and, and to see, you know, what and 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 I only sent you a couple of things, but there's some other things that are just uh, little sequences that that I'm just so proud of that I'd love to have out on disc. Um, and uh, it was great that 13 things got recorded. That was I was happy about that. And uh, but you know. Um, was that except for that one song um, um no one else has recorded anything from the score and uh um, um but it's worth having an album <laughs> and and joe uh, uh, is a brilliant orchestrator and his orchestrations are for the for the show are they're fantastic i remember going to the first orchestra rehearsal and just you know i just i mean happy 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 just to hear hear all those musicians doing that thing and i sent you that that thing of brent uh yeah. interestingly enough brent got uh, hired to do this concert on it was called new york new york and it was all songs uh, about the city and it was he and kim criswell and the boston and not the boston and the bbc orchestra 60-piece orchestra and and brent said to me i'd like to do i belong can we get it orchestrated? And we got it orchestrated for 60 musicians. And I've never had that happen before. And they sent me the, the recording of the, of the radio. It was a ra live radio concert. And they sent me the recording. It, and I've got to say, when, when you hear you know, those musicians go to it and you just go, it, it's an out-of-body experience. The, the one thing to say about writing is that once you walk away from a project, whatever it is, um, it becomes an out of, body, out, of, out of body experience from then on in. You have no recollection of having written it. You have no recollection of what, you met, what brain mode you were in when that came out or how that came out or why that came out. It is, it, you, something takes over and you just do this thing and once once you've signed off on it, it just becomes something else. And then from then on in, when you're introduced to it, it's a new experience. It's, it's, it's you go, wow, what is I, I, I'm telling you, it, it, that is, I, I, I would guess every writer pretty much has that, that feeling of, of uh, yeah, I guess it's, it's part of my DNA is, is in there, but, but I don't much remember what made that happen where that expression came from, how that happened. It's a, it's that, that the writing uh, process is truly mysterious. Yeah. It's a craft. So you, you've got the basics of the craft, but what happens within that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, and, and you do it until you say, I, I don't want to do this anymore. But otherwise you just keep doing it. I mean, Shelton Harnick is 96. He's still, he's still at it. Bless him. <laughs> so, I want to ask you much of you were mentioning, we were talking about records of a lot of it has been on Harbinger records. So right. is there a particular reason other than I know you've heard <laughs> Ken Bloom? Well, yes. I, well, part of it also is that uh, Ken uh, Bloom, who is half of Harbinger record, mm -hmm. Ken yeah. saw Big City Rhythm. He said, they were looking to start the label. They had, they had had just a couple of things. And and he said, we'd love to do this. What do you think? And 
So we did it. And listen, we did it because everybody was ready to go. We got them in a studio. We were able to do it very quickly. Uh, everybody was ready to roll. Um, uh, and so, uh, and then um, uh, 13 things, same thing. I inv uh, invited Bill and Ken to the audition for Peter Tier. And when afterwards, Bill and Ken both said, we would love to put this out as an album. So that was how that happened. Um, and that's the only two albums, you know, uh, that I have out there. Otherwise, all the other songs have been, you know, uh, different labels or different, you know, whatever. Um, uh, but it was, again, because they were supportive of my work. I was very lucky in that they were supportive. Of they liked my work and thought it should be heard. Um, um, so, and I think that's, you know, we're, we're moving now into a world where albums are going to become a thing of the past. I, I'm sorry to tell you this, but, uh, you know, everything is going to be streamed and, and, and hard disks are going to be something you're going to burn to give to somebody, but, but, you know, don't expect to buy them. Uh, and, uh, so the business is just going to keep changing and how we hear things is going to change and how albums for shows are going to happen. It's all, it's all going to be a, a very different, different, uh, way of, of, of doing things. So, uh, I, I, I don't know, you know, so yeah, so, but, but Ken was very supportive and that's a good thing. It's always a good thing. Yeah, so it I is. Well, I'd love to ask you about one more show for now for our first part, and that is um, Metropolitan. How did you sort of come to collaborate with Christoph Miram Bowen? <laughs> it, this was, okay. So I went to Paris and I met, and we, uh, Ken and I on one trip to Paris had met Christoph. And Christoph uh, is one of the leading musical uh, theater experts in Europe. I mean, he knows more about the French musical theater than anybody on this planet. He is just a font of knowledge. We hit it off immediately. And, uh, and so I went one trip to Paris and Ken wasn't, wasn't there. It, I was, cause I, was, I think I was coming from London or something. And I went to Paris and I met with Christophe and he said, um, I think we should write a show together. So said, well, what kind of a show could we write together? And he says, I don't know. He said, but I love your stuff and I just think we should write together. So then we hit on this idea of Metropolitan because uh, he what, said he was fascinated about, he fascinated by New York. And uh, I said, well, you know, I said, it's funny because, you know, he said, we come over here and we keep telling you how wonderful Paris is. Yeah, we New Yorkers tell you how wonderful Paris is. And I said, maybe that's it. Maybe we do a show where it's about, it's a, a Parisian's perceptions of New York and a New Yorker's perceptions of Paris. And then we hit on the subway the Metropolitan, which is the name in both cities. It's the Metro, short in Paris, but it's Metropolitan, and it's got an extra I in it, and then we have the Metropolitan. So, uh, so we, we right away went, we gotta do this. So I uh, went back to the States. I got another job in, in London. I went back to London. I suddenly get a call from Christoph, and he says, you have to fly you have to fly to Paris immediately. 
or take the take the train. I said, what? I said, I just, I, he said, can't, when can you be here? And I said, I can be there. This is again, taking the opportunity. He said, I said, I can be there in uh, uh, tomorrow. I said, I've got to finish up today. At this, as, he said, okay, great, come tomorrow. <laughs> so I take the train, uh, the channel, I go to Paris. I meet Christophe. He, pours me into a taxi cab and he takes me out to the middle of a forest somewhere where there was a, a theater festival going on. And I had no idea where it was. And I, did, I said, if I don't have a trail of breadcrumbs, I don't know. I don't know how I'm gonna get back to my hotel. Okay, so he wanted me to meet this guy, Jackie, who uh, was this producer and Jackie, had decided he was going to do this thing called Diva, D-I-V-A, which was music, French musical theater and to do a festival. And this, what was going on when, where, uh, when I, we went out into this forest was it was the first Diva festival. And we actually went to see one of the shows that night, which was uh, incomprehensible to me. But anyhow, we met with Jackie and his wife and, and um, and Christoph said, Barry and I are gonna write this show and we're gonna do this thing Metropolitan and we wanna be part of the next Diva Festival. And Jackie said, great. So the next thing I know, I mean, we haven't written a note. So <laughs> the next thing I know is we have dates which were uh, nine months away and we were gonna be doing this show on this barge. And so we had a title and that's all they needed to know. And suddenly we had a booking and we didn't have a show. So that January, uh, a friend of Ken's and mine was going to Australia and his apartment was available. So I said, I'm gonna come there and I'm gonna write. And I went to his apartment and, um, and oh, <laughs> and he left me a keyboard. I said, do you have a keyboard? He says, yes, I have a keyboard. And, um, and, but what he didn't tell me was that the only patch on his keyboard that worked was organ. He, he didn't, none of the, the piano thing didn't work. So I could only play like either trumpet or organ. It was, it was this weird thing, but so I'd sit there with my headphones and I'd try to get to it, but I wrote, I wrote sketches for three, three of the songs that ended up in the show. So the trip was very successful. And, and, and for me, it was sitting in a cafe listening to the way people were talking, watching the city and learning from the experience as a New Yorker sitting in, in this world. So I was really able to put that in the writing. We, we got the show together. Pete, I mean, we were just working like crazy to piece it together. We found a cast that was bilingual. We put it on there. The reactions seemed to be very good. And we immediately said, we have to do the show in New York. So we booked the Lori Beachman for four nights at, uh, uh, on, uh, at the West Bank Cafe. And we, we, brought the, uh, uh, we brought three of the French cast members over and then we recast the other parts here. And, uh, uh, and we rewrote the show in between the interim and, um, and we did it for the four performances. Uh, and it was very well received. Um, and I, again, we thought we, uh, there was a woman who came from the French consulate who came to see the show, who loved it and thought it would be a great uh, calling card for relations between the United States and, Amer and France. 
Uh, and uh, but you know, again, it 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 just it never it never went further, and uh, it's too bad because it was really a fun show. And uh, but again, it happened. Just it was. It's a crazy accident. It's like you get it. It's like with Penny and Thirteen Things. We have a date, and then we have to have a show. So you know, however it is that it makes it happen, it's not the normal route. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like you're toiling and trying to put this thing together. You know, it's suddenly you know this uh, this, this other thing. So so. Uh, um, uh, but again, the challenge of if this is the show, and if you're only writing half the show. What do you do to make the numbers say what you want to say and make it feel like it's all one piece when you have writers, when you have three different writers contributing to the flow and how do you make that happen? Um, and it was, it was, um, and the cast was so good that they, what was wonderful about the cast, especially the French cast members, although they were all wonderful, but the French cast members had never had numbers written especially for them. And when, um, when we did the show in France, some of the numbers were not, that did not show them in the way that they needed to be shown. And I made sure that by the time we came to New York, because this is a case of what you were talking about, where you know who you're writing for and you know what their strengths are and you suddenly say, I'm going to write something for you that I think expresses what I see in you. And so having somebody write something for you, uh, I remember, because uh, I, I gave you Trey Sheik and, and, and Caroline, who uh, was um, a wonderful dancer, and I knew she was a wonderful dancer. She said, I'd love, you know, she said, uh, can we do something that I get to move? And I wrote this song and, um, and when we demonstrated the song for her and uh, Lisa, the other, one of the other women in the cast said, I am really jealous because she knew, she says, she says, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna win with that. You know, that, that, that's, that's, you know, and, and, and Caroline knew it too. And she did, she did this dance. I mean, she was, she was fantastic. It was, it, but it, it gave her a wonderful opportunity. It also has a rhyme that, that you know how good a lyricist is. They all have a line or two that they go, I'm so happy I wrote that. <laughs> and it's, it's the rhyme because she's, she, she talks about being a dog. And I think you already know, the, know what it is, but, but she says, uh, oh, she's, because she's a dog. And she says, and when you are a canine, that's the way nine out of 10 things are. Canine and way nine. Uh, uh, that, that, that cracked me up. It does, I don't care if the audience gets it or not. It's there. And every time I hear it, I smile. <laughs> you know, so it's things like that. Way nine and K nine, we take what we can get. <laughs> um, and that so. is where I ended part one with a true man of the theater, Barry Kleinbart. I hope you all enjoyed the episode and that you will remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Remember to tune back in next time for more with Barry Kleinbart. <laughs>